all of your faces, all of our faces, and to see uh, some of you in parts of the world that are a long way from from here, where I'm sitting in in Oxford, Istanbul, and Denmark, and uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, and whether you're whether you're wherever you are, yeah, you're really welcome. You've been a very precious and valued part of this retreat, really. And would like just this morning to offer a few further reflections really around this theme of appropriate response, which uh, we mentioned last evening in that, that Zen story of what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? What's the goal of practice? And the answer comes back, an appropriate response or our capacity to respond appropriately to conditions, uh, internal and external. And Matt wove that beautifully into our, our guidance this morning. And really, you know, these questions of what's happening and what's an appropriate response to what's happening. These really are integral to the practices of wisdom and compassion, whether in calm or in turbulent times. A a deep listening, a deep listening to the internal and external conditions and developing our capacity over the the days, the weeks, the months, the years, the decades of practice for our capacity for attuned and appropriate responsiveness, whether to the joys or to the sorrows, the 10,000 joys or the 10,000 sorrows that we experience in our own bodies and hearts, that we experience in our families, our communities, our workplaces, our societies, our world. And uh, as you can probably tell, um, we're very inspired by uh, the the image, the uh, practices, the reminders embodied in the figure of Kuan Yin. However we relate to that, just, you know, as an image, as a, a reminder, you know, this embodiment of the capacity for deep equanimity, deep wisdom, deep balance, non-reactivity, and, and, a, and a peacefulness. And a responsiveness a responsiveness to the conditions of the world, to the cries, the suffering cries of the world. And in China, there are images of Kuan Yin that that have a thousand hands and arms. And the hands often have an eye 
in the palm, which is the kind of repre representing the kind of quality of presence or mindfulness. And each of the hands holds a different symbolic uh, object or implement. Uh, you know, some of them are holding a, like a vase of soothing ointment or, or a willow branch to bless or some, some kind of emblem of healing and, and, and soothing. And some of the hands are holding fiery swords and holding axes and holding kind of bows and arrows, you know, and kind of representing just the limitless range that appropriate response can take, the limitless forms that appropriate response can take some, you know, infinitely soft and gentle and others strong and, you know, warrior-like in, in kind of female and male incarnations of that warriorship, even fierce. And isn't it the case, isn't it the case that in living a human life and engaging in family life, community life, uh, the life of our societies, don't we need a wide range of responses? Uh, and aren't a wide range of responses called for in our lives and our times? We need both tremendous gentleness and sometimes tremendous strength and a willingness to be fierce, <laughs> you know, to be fierce with our boundary drawing, our, our, our gestures of no, you know, our gestures of protest. You know? And I find myself wondering, you know, amidst these turbulent times, what might, amidst our turbulent times now, you know, what might be in some of Kuan Yin's hands at, in our time? There might be emblems if we were creating a, an image of Kuan Yin with a thousand hands and arms for this particular time. There might, there would be yeah, images of soothing and healing. There would be surely the kind of the meditation bells and the yoga mats that, you know, some of you, uh, you know, using your practice and using your teaching of mindfulness in different contexts. There would probably be PPE uh, equipment for health and social care workers, wouldn't there? You know, in, in some of Kuan Yin's hands and arms. But mightn't there also be banners that say Extinction Rebellion or that say Black Lives Matter or that say elected leaders should tell the truth or that say equal pay for equal work? Might there not also be kind of the lock-on equipment and even the wire cutters of those engaged in campaigning for democracy, for an end to racial injustice and to systemic and structural oppression? Those campaigning to keep fossil fuels in the ground 
or to prevent the sweeping away of hard-won laws protecting climate, biodiversity, habitat, or the basic standards of safety and welfare for workers and those working in the most dangerous and difficult industries and occupations. Prevent these from being swept away as a kind of under the guise of deregulation or removing red tape. Might Kuan Yin not also be holding uh, all that it takes to set up encampment in an ancient woodland to prevent it from being destroyed to make room for more roads? If, if we listen deeply to these turbulent times, if we listen deeply to these turbulent times, what's called for in terms of appropriate response? What's called for in terms of appropriate response? And for each of us, that's going to be different. This is so important. This is part of the message of the thousand hands and arms. You know, that if we're really attuned to internal conditions, to the immediate conditions in our family, our circumstance, you know, as well as our world, that's going to change from day to day, month to month, year to year. And it's going to look different and the different responses can be equally appropriate. No one can prescribe, you know, it may be entirely appropriate for us to devote all our compassionate energies to healing trauma in our own bodies and hearts, to caring for our children, or to caring for a sick or elderly relative, or to being on an extended retreat in the seclusion of somewhere like Gaia House, when they reopen the personal wing, which will hopefully be soon. You know. That may be entirely appropriate to the conditions of our bodies and hearts. And I wonder when we really listen deeply to the turbulence of these difficult times, if we might feel challenged to use the resourcing that Dharma practice gives us to step out of comfort zones into more active and engaged responses. Which may look like, you know, signing petitions, may look like donating to charities and campaign organizations, but it may also involve taking to the streets or occupying spaces such as the the offices and conferences of fossil fuel organizations or those engaged in destroying habitats and biodiversity. And many of you, many of you, many of you are already involved in the full range across these responses and just a deep bow to you, a deep bow to you. And it may be that what I'm saying now is mostly directed at myself. mostly directed at myself. So with great respect for all the ways in which we're already responding. But I always find salutary the words of the political philosopher Edmund Burke, who said, as you probably remember, all that is necessary 
for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. And evil was a word that the Buddha was prepared to use and did use in situations where actions were being consciously performed that were directed by greed, hatred, and delusion. All that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. And of course, you know, retreats and retreat centers tend to be filled with good people, good men and women, and the, the range of genders who are welcome in our retreats and retreat centers. Good people whose intentions are deeply ethical and who are genuinely seeking to uproot the forces of greed, hatred and delusion from their lives and their hearts. You know, and that's wonderful, that's wonderful. And history suggests that there's always the danger in contemplative practice and traditions of slipping either individually or collectively into what the Buddha called the near enemy of equanimity. The near enemy, we could almost say of wisdom. And that near enemy is in fact kind of neither equanimity nor wisdom. It's what he called indifference. And it's so interesting that the Buddha used the same word for indifference as for equanimity, this word upeka. And, you know, for me that suggests just how easy it is to slip unconsciously into the different flavors of indifference that can look like a kind of well-intentioned passivity or numbness or denial or privileged distance where you know i may think i'm i'm being equanimous you know i'm i'm equanimous about climate change or i'm equanimous about racial injustice and actually that's not equanimity at all that's just disconnection and numbness and the kind of passivity that comes from being in a place of privilege you know, being able to be numb in that kind of way and there is this danger in our contemplative practice where we can end up so valuing the inner that we neglect the outer you know we can have that view oh the world is all empty you know it's it's empty anyway or it's just samsara or it's just greed hatred and delusion and of course, the Buddha's teachings are just infinitely more canny than that, infinitely more attuned than that, you know. And so the Buddha, you know, offers us these Brahma Viharas, highlighting how they need each other. Each of these qualities of kindness, of appreciative joy, of compassion, of equanimity, needs the others to prevent it from slipping into its near enemy states. 
So, so we can sense how the, the, the Brahma Vihara of friendliness and kindness, midst the pleasantness of that, can slip into attachment and clinging, can't it? <laughs> Anybody not notice that? You know? How, how the Brahma Vihara of enjoyment, joyfulness, appreciation, can slip into the near enemy of intoxication and a kind of ungrounded euphoria. Again, anyone not know that? (laughs) How compassion can slip so easily into the, the near enemies of pity, where I'm over here doing okay and I'm really sorry for you over there, you know, or for you down there, but can also slip into the near enemy state of despair or overwhelm, you know, midst the turbulence, midst the suffering of our times, you know. And equanimity too, you know, can slip into these states of indifference in all their subtle forms. Um, And, you know, the Buddha, yeah, we can see how it's uh, equanimity that helps protect friendliness, joyfulness, compassion helps protect them, helps to keep them oriented in skillful and appropriately responsive ways midst the intensities of the joys and the sorrows of this life, the intensities of the pleasure and the pain of this life. Equanimity is that coolness that can support the heart's natural responsiveness across the range of feeling tones, we could say, the range of... uh, human experience and we can sense how friendliness enjoyment and compassion keep the the coolness of equanimity connected to the heart keep it sensitive keep it feeling keep it responsive appropriately responsive and You know, the Buddha, it's from that responsiveness that the Buddha asks us to engage. It's from that responsiveness that the Buddha places ethics as the foundation of this path and as integral to, to its destination. <laughs> you know, ethics, as far as we know, the Buddha was the first teacher in India to give a totally central role to ethics not just as a kind of preliminary practice, but right through the path of awakening and as an integral part of the goal of awakening. And an ethics that, yes, asks us to refrain from doing certain things, as as Matt described on the first evening of our retreat, but also to cultivate, to engage in wholesome actions in actions that are protective, in actions that are 
compassionate in, in the full range of what that compassion may involve. And, you know, maybe, maybe if, if we do listen deeply to the warnings that we've all received uh, that we have 10 years at most, 10 years at most to prevent uh, truly catastrophic climate change. We may, we may find ourselves challenged to ask what might appropriate responses to these times, what might really appropriate responses to these times look like and feel like. And yes, you know, they may, you know, at a personal level, ask each of us to review our carbon footprint, our holiday habits, our dietary preferences, our self-education about the unconscious privileges and biases that keep us kind of entangled and colluding in oppressive social structures and systems. But they also, this practice also asks us the ethics of this path, ask us what might be appropriate responses at collective and societal levels. Pope Francis has said, you know, in these times, business as usual is no longer an ethical option. In these times, business as usual is no longer an ethical option. And I wonder if we need a new generation of artists, Dharma artists, to create for us images and sculptures and, and rupas of the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas as activists, as well as meditators. You know, we, we may need to widen the range of our imagination of what are appropriate responses in our time. So if any of you have those skills and feel moved to, to, uh, to paint or sculpt Kuan Yin uh, at an Extinction Rebellion protest or, you know, the Buddha engaged in uh, dialogue about uh, race and privilege and supporting the Black Lives Matter activists, you know, uh, please feel free to let your imagination uh, roll with, with that. You know. uh, but it does feel, you know, at the, as we come towards the end of a retreat that's entitled Practicing Wisdom and Compassion in Turbulent Times, that that this may be a good day, a good day for each of us, just to pause for a moment and refresh our reflections on what might be appropriate responses, really appropriate responses, internally, externally, that really honor the condition of these times. It's sometimes said that action absorbs anxiety and uh, as we kind of feel the turbulence and anxiety in our bodies and hearts you know just to have that sense of how action whether it's caring for 
a relative or a garden or for uh, a forest. You know, uh, this may be a wise response. Thich Nhat Hanh says, on this path of wisdom and compassion, we need a cool head and a warm heart. And we could perhaps add a grounded body and an engaged life. So should we take just a few uh, moments? In fact, we've got more than a few moments. We've got about 20 minutes uh, for, for a sitting. Um, should, we, should we take that time? And uh, you may want to stretch or you may want to stand. You may want to lie down or walk. I'm conscious that these kind of reflections are, are in a certain way unsettling and that these times may call for, for unsettling, but they also call for learning to settle more and more deeply. And we really hope this retreat has supported you in that so that our settledness can support us with the unsettledness you like so as you as you find a, a posture for this moment that's an appropriate response to this moment letting yourself settle letting yourself feel and receive and appreciate, enjoy the unconditional gift of ground, the grace of that, the blessing of ground, earth. Support. The grace and blessing of breath. this breath of life, so precious. This moment to bring kindness and a deep responsive listening to this body, heart, mind.
Thank you, Chris, for that really inspiring reflection. So I'd like to um, say something about one possible form of appropriate response that, uh, that we could consider, which is um, the practice of dana. This is some of you, I, I think about a third of you have not been on a Gaia house retreat before and you might not be familiar um, with this culture or this thread of the teaching. And so dana is the Pali word, Pali being the, the language of the early Buddhist teaching, the, the Pali word for giving or for generosity. And I'd really like to begin by offering our heartfelt thanks and appreciation to those of you who've already uh, been undertaking this practice in the context of this retreat. And uh, um, thank you for your offerings, which are really um, welcome and um, appreciatively received. So, uh, you could say that giving or generosity is really the practice of metta, the practice of friendliness in action. And of course, it can take many forms, you know, just your showing up, maybe in the moments when you've slightly had to drag yourself back to your device or your computer uh, has been an act of generosity. Um, your willingness to uh, kind of stay with the process of doing things like lighting candles to Buddha statues and listening to weird chants is strange to you, but you've wanted to kind of keep your energy participating in the group. That's an act of generosity. Probably you've been called on to do all sorts of things, you know, peripheral to the retreat that you might rather have not had to engage with over these last few days, but you've done them willingly out of the generosity of your heart. And to really notice what it feels like to do something from a place of generosity or to be the recipient of generosity. So there's so many um, small and large acts of kindness that have been called forth from all of us in these particular times um, that really give us, as, you know, really light up the heart and can um, help us to understand why the Buddha wanted to make this so central to the teachings and the practice. So it's said that actually the practice begins with the practice of generosity. The Buddha taught generosity before he even taught about ethics or before he taught about cultivation and meditation. And... Um, the Buddha himself, actually, the society at the time of the Buddha was really a, largely a gift economy. You know, having money was only something that the very, the sort of elite in society had money. And so the whole world depended on generosity in order to function. And one of my fears is, or the, the um, there's a strong possibility you know, to acknowledge that actually in many parts of the world this is, this is still the case actually, that people depend on one another's generosity for survival. And it seems to me that at the moment we're entering into a phase where as our 
economic systems really are shaken to the foundation and uh, you know huge fluctuations in all our livelihoods that actually this gift economy is going to become more and more important and it's something that we could actually make us a, a practice of stepping into consciously um, and potentially joyfully and so in the Gaia, the Gaia, Gaia house is part of the insight meditation tradition which um, follows in a lineage that goes right back to the Buddha where the Buddha established a monastic order that was the conduit of the teachings for centuries millennia where uh, the monks and nuns were entirely dependent for their livelihood on the gifts of people who were inspired to come and listen to the teachings. And when our teachers uh, began bringing these teachings to a Western audience, they decided that this was such a valuable part of the practice that they wanted to continue to operate in these ways. Also, because very importantly, it makes the teachings accessible both to those who have plenty of means and to those who have no financial means at all. And so we, we sit in that tradition. We don't charge a fee for our teaching and we depend on the appreciative generosity of people who receive teachings from us to keep that process going. So when you offer to teachers, you enable them to um, continue to develop their own practice and to share this teaching with other people and with other people who maybe have fewer means than you do. We're also offering uh, this retreat through Gaia House and the retreat centers are really, have really been struck in this particular time. Um, by the fact that they've had to close their doors and their income stream has entirely dried up. And Gaia House is, uh, it, it's, it launched an appeal a couple, of or a couple of months ago, maybe into the pandemic, and there was a, a beautiful response to that. But that, the, that response covers, has covered its running costs, I think, I think for three or four months. And its future is you know, precarious as, are the, as is the future of many organizations. It will continue to depend on the generosity and the goodwill of people who come there or who tap into the field of what it offers to keep offering these things. Um, so we would, uh, there's an opportunity for you to uh, make offerings to us for the teachings. Um, which uh, we to a large extent depend on for our livelihood. It's a, a predominant part of what, at least of what I do. And I think Chris also, you know, is, um, and Matt, and we will be sharing. So there's a, there's a PayPal link, which is entirely in my name, but that's just for convenience sake. I will be sharing any offerings that you donate with Chris and Matt. So please don't have anxiety about that. Um, and there's also uh, a link, this is on the website, but I think Matt will post it into the chat box, if that's helpful for you, to the Gaia House website, where you could make a donation either to Gaia House or both to Gaia House and to uh, 
um, to us as teachers and you need to follow the instructions there to specify whether your donation is for Gaia House or whether it's for this retreat and if you specify it's for the teachers of this retreat or uh, yeah the teachers of this retreat then it will come through to us um, and help us to continue with this work and just to say that this is this is not really a tip it's actually you know what we receive for doing this and what you see on the on over these few days is kind of the tip of an iceberg of a lot of preparation and practice time that goes into making these offerings and that uh, teachers are also putting in a lot of pro bono work behind the scenes to support the the organization and the, the kind of um, the general holding feed field of Gaia House. And I also, we really recognize that all of you are in your own particular circumstances and many of you will be really suffering from the effects of the pandemic in your financial circumstances. And so to please only offer what you feel uh, comfortable to offer, what would be an expression of generosity that you can sit with happily that you can feel good about uh, in your particular circumstance in these particular times uh, and if we all continue to operate on this basis you know i think this is our best recipe for stepping into the future so really appreciate your participating in this and i'll allow matt and chris to add anything that they'd like to add Yeah, so thank you, Jaya. Um, yeah, when I was reflecting last night about what I wanted to say about this tradition, um, what came back to me was that prior to encountering this form of retreat and the way it's offered, things were occasionally free, but usually there was some kind of fee that you could either afford or you couldn't. And my first reaction to that invitation on the very first retreat that I sat to offer Dana at the end to consider an act of generosity was quite an emotional one for me. I felt there was something very beautiful in this that I had received so much from the week of teachings, from the guidance of the teachers, and yet they'd showed up with absolutely no guarantee of what they might receive. And I'm regularly in the seat where I'm invited to offer Dharma as well as receiving it at other times. And having been on both sides of this exchange, I also appreciate how wonderful it is to actually give my own time to support people's understanding and practice. So this is a very alive and relational practice for me. Um, when I'm in the position of offering Dharma, I really feel that I'm called upon to inquire within to sense how I want to respond to the invitation. And when I first began to practice, my means were less. I was much younger, earlier in my working life. And I really valued that this tradition enabled me to give what I was able to afford. But it also asked me to look inward. 
it wasn't simply a case of what I can get away with giving, but it felt a very integrated and connective part of the practice. And my own teachers and the centres I've practised in have all relied on dana. They've relied on the generosity of students in order so that these teachings can continue. So that they can be offered to future generations. And so in a way, this um, act of generosity that we're called to participate in means that we are actually also trustees or custodians of these teachings, protecting them and taking care of them for the future. So in all Dharma practice, we are called upon to go beyond our habitual ways of relating with ourselves, with others, with all experience. And the practice of dana is no exception. This is as much a part of our practice as the breaths we take while we sat on the cushion or the steps we take on our walking path. And for me, it's this practice of generosity that really connects what we do on retreat with the rest of our lives. So in the offering of dana, of course, something is given, but we also get to receive. Something feels good in the heart. It feels good in my heart when I practice generosity. At whatever level is appropriate for us, given our means, given our circumstances. And there's a real reciprocity in this giving and in the receiving that binds us together. That sense of separateness we can often feel gets reduced a little. And so I would encourage you just to sense how these teachings have landed with you this week and how that resonates in your heart. And to sense for yourself how you value that. And also what you're able to support the livelihoods of Jaya, Chris and myself. This is something we really do out of love for these teachings and for the love of the fruits of practice. And we hope that you love it too. So I'll pass you over to Chris. I have very little to add uh, beyond thanking uh, Jaya and Matt for those words. Um, and also just, again, reiterating about supporting the centres at this time. Um, Gaia House is offering these retreats, uh, online retreats at the moment with no registration fee. So although they've put work into supporting our retreat over these days in all kinds of ways, they're actually not getting any remuneration from this retreat um, other than what we give. And yeah, they are in a time of genuine kind of financial hardship and even crisis. Some centers are threatened with, with, with closure and uh, you know, in, I often think about what we're handing on to future generations in these turbulent times. We're handing a, a bunch of problems, certainly, but also we are handing on these Dharma organizations uh, as refuges and supports for whatever the future holds. And so, you know, really an encouragement uh, to us all to, to, to take the chance to support Gaia House. Um, and other centers you may be connected with because they really need it and they really appreciate it, really appreciate it. Enables us to 
pass them on to the future uh, as best we can. So yeah, whatever you give and whatever for, just know that it's really appreciated and we're very grateful. So. so dear friends, uh, we have uh, the form of our retreat lingers for a few hours more and you may want to just make the most of that sense of support for practice and so there's a there's a walking period now and really you know it's our last walking period of of the retreat um and uh so a real encouragement to to make good use of it uh, and there'll be a sitting then at 11 15 uk time and then again the qigong uh, that jaya is there so uh, skillfully offering us i think uh, at 12. So enjoy practicing together for, for these next few hours. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.